Hey, um, on that note, talking about kids, how many of you guys were here for uh, Fall Fest on Friday night? Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, the line for that thing was unbelievable. We, we just took a, a wild guess estimate. I don't know who did this, but they're estimating somewhere in the neighborhood of about 20,000 people came to this place on Friday night. And here's the deal. We didn't run out of candy thanks to you guys. So that's really, really, yeah, that's a big deal. So thank you guys for that. Um, I took my three kids, so I contributed to that 20,000. And for the older two, Landry and Eli, they've really got the whole trick-or-treating thing down. Like they're veterans now. They know how it works and they just work the process and all that. My youngest, Silas, who's two years old, and this is the first time he's been able to like significantly participate in the deal. And so he dressed up as a dragon and we put him in the stroller and we wheeled him around and he didn't understand to say trick or treat. That didn't make any sense to him. So when people would look at him, he would just roar at them. So he'd just go, rawr! And then they would give him, they would give him candy. And he was like, wow, this is cool. I'll just keep doing it. So everybody he saw, he's like, rawr, you know, they give him candy and he kept, he had this like bucket, you know, where the candy was going and he kept looking in it like, this is amazing. There's more and more in there. Every time I look in there, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, he was just amazed by the whole process. And as I was watching him react to that, and he was kind of taking it in as the gift that keeps on giving, I was thinking about uh, this movie. It's one of my favorite movies. I've told you before, and soon enough, we'll be able to see it like 24 hours a day on TNT and TBS, A Christmas Vacation, right? And in that, in that movie, I, I love that moment where Clark is just totally freaking out because he thought he was going to get a Christmas bonus instead of getting a Christmas bonus. He got a free membership to the Jelly of the Month Club. And Cousin Eddie looks back at him and goes, but Clark, that's the gift that keeps on giving. Now here's the worst transition you've ever heard in your life. That's what we're going to talk about today. All right. We're going to talk about the gift that keeps on giving. We've been in this series called Two Deals and we talk all the time about how there's two deals on the table. And, and what we talked about last week is the fact that in regards to connecting, being reconnected back to God, there really are two deals on the table. A deal number one, which we unpacked last week, is simply this, perfectly obey God's law, right? And we talked about why that's really a bad deal to take. And then the second deal on the table is this, totally embrace God's grace. And we talked about how a lot of people with those two deals on the table, for whatever reason, will take deal number one. In fact, most people on the planet today have taken some version of deal number one. Most people are living their lives hoping and praying that being good will be good enough for God. And relying on the fact that our relative goodness compared to somebody else is going to be enough for God. And so a lot of people become very religious and we start checking off boxes. Here's the good things I've done. Here's the bad things I haven't done. The problem with religion that we talked about last week is religion always leads to one of two places, right? Arrogance or despair. And last week we heard a story that Jesus told about this really arrogant religious guy who was really good at pointing out other people's faults. And we've all run into people like that in our life, haven't we? Religious people who are really good at pointing out everything you're doing wrong and they're not very perceptive to see what they're doing wrong. But then we journeyed through uh, really three chapters of Romans, Romans chapter two, Romans chapter three, and a little bit of Romans chapter four. And we discovered that being arrogant is totally incompatible with embracing God's grace. In other words, there's, there's no room for us to boast when we take deal number two, because under deal number two, the only thing that we did, the only part in the deal that we played was really messing everything up, right? The only thing we did was become really, really sinful people who put ourselves at odds with God and God did all the work in saving us and he justified us. I remember talking about that word last week, which means that he declared us righteous and he did that freely by his grace based on absolutely no merit of our own so being arrogant would be totally inconsistent with taking deal number two but to be really honest with you I don't think we have a lot of real 
arrogant religious people at Flatirons. We really don't. We, we get some folks like that and they come and they go and they fire off nasty emails and then they go grace some other very lucky church with their presence, right? But Jim and I don't have to stand up here and spend a whole lot of time convincing the people in this room that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Most of us come in here pretty keenly aware of the fact that we have fallen short of God's perfect standard. And even people who come in here who don't believe in God, in theory, they'll go, yeah, if there's a God out there, there's no way that I would measure up to him. The problem still remains, though, that a lot of us will still take deal number one and hope that God will grade on the curve and he'll give us an A for effort. And we typically, though, somewhere deep inside, in the midst of all of our religious activity and attempts at being good people, there's something gnawing deep inside that tells us this can't possibly be enough. This, this can't possibly be enough. And, our, and we start to feel like our efforts are futile. And so what do we do? We try to stuff that feeling down. We try to ignore that voice. We try to stay busy and pretend that everything will be okay. And some of us have the ability to do that for a long, long time. I want to tell you this morning about a man who didn't have the ability to do that at all. His name was Martin Luther, and Jim talked about him a little bit back at the beginning of the semester when we kicked off this study on on Romans, but he's a pretty famous dude. He's the reason why there's a difference between Protestant churches and Catholic churches today. He's the reason why we all are sitting in a Protestant church today. He was born in the 1400s back in Germany, and his father expected him to become an attorney, and that was the path that Martin Luther was taking. He, He enrolled in law school, and he was doing pretty well in law school, until one day when he's walking through this field, and he's almost struck by lightning and he's knocked to the ground. And in that moment, he had this deep sense that God was after him, like that God was coming to get him. And so, so he made a vow before God in that moment, laying in that field, he said, God, I'll become a monk if you just won't kill me. That was basically the end of the deal. And so he goes off and he joins a monastery in an effort to appease God. But during his studies in the monastery, he retained his keen perception and understanding of the law, and he took that with him as he studied the Bible. And so as he studied the Bible, he became painfully aware of the fact, as he studied God's law, that there was no way that he could ever measure up to God. And he noticed as he looked around him, everybody else seemed to be able to just rely on their religious behavior and and rely on their relative goodness, and everybody else seemed to get through life just fine. But he couldn't turn off the voice that was condemning him, saying, you'll never be enough, you'll never be enough. He couldn't turn it off. I heard a guy on TV the other day say that he believes it's every person on the planet's birthright to live a happy, full, healthy life. And I started thinking about that and I thought, number one, that's not true. Number two, Luther didn't see that taught in the Bible anywhere. He saw the Bible teaching that God actually, if we want to get right down to brass tacks, God doesn't owe us anything except if we really want to fight for our rights before God, the only thing that God owes us is eternal separation from him because we don't measure up to him. And that's what Luther saw every time he opened the Bible. You see, he had this lethal combination of things going on in his life. He had his, his mind. He really was a genius. He understood the law in, in ways that most people couldn't. And he also had, along with that, a really, a really immense knowledge of his own faults and sins. And then you combine that with the Catholic teaching at the time, which said that, listen, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross wasn't all sufficient for your justification or your salvation, it's, like, it's more like 80% sufficient, but you gotta contribute like 20% good works, and that's the way it works. And so Martin Luther took all that, and it led him almost to the brink of insanity, and it definitely led him into the depths of despair. Why? 
Well, because religion always leads to one of two places, right? Either arrogance or despair. And last week we talked about how the gospel, the good news about Jesus becoming our sin, taking our punishment on the cross, being risen from the grave, conquering Satan's sin and death on our behalf, that's really, that's really the cure for arrogance. But what, is it, what does the gospel have to say to despair? And that might be where you are right now. I mean, maybe you're wrestling, struggling with the fact that you feel like such a failure. You feel like all your attempts to do anything in life are coming up short. You feel like even your attempts to do good things aren't even close to being good enough. You look in the mirror and you see somebody who's messed up their whole life over and over and over again. That's how Luther felt and he couldn't escape it. And he was a monk for crying out loud. I mean, what can you do wrong in a monastery? I don't know what you get into, you know, what's the, what's the deal? Yet he wrestled with intense guilt. So much so that he would go to confession for upwards of six hours a day. He would sit in a little booth and confess to one of the priests up to the point where the priests hated to see him coming because they didn't want to sit there and listen to him all day long. So finally, one of the priests yelled at him and said this, man, God is not angry with you. You're angry with God. Don't you know that God commands you to hope? Those are really interesting words. Luther later reflected on those days and he admitted it. He said this, I could not but imagine that I had angered God, whom I in turn, here it is, had to appease by doing good works. You ever been in that place? Maybe you're there today going, man, I bet God's angry at me and I bet the only thing I can do to make that better is for me to do a bunch of good stuff on his behalf. Luther even went so far as to say this, I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Can I ask you a question? You angry with God? You ever been angry with God? You ever feel like he's putting too much pressure on you? You ever been angry at God because of the circumstances that hit your life and you feel like you were owed more? Feel like you were owed better? Maybe you're angry with God because you kind of like Luther can clearly see that there's no way you could possibly measure up to God's standard and you're mad at him for demanding that you do. And you understand that God's demanding something out of you that you cannot produce in yourself and that's called perfect obedience. And you can see clearly maybe that God is perfect and holy and righteous and you also can see very clearly that when you look in the mirror, you are none of those things. And so the idea of being able to enter into a relationship with God seems absolutely impossible and so you're driven to despair and maybe you do what a lot of people do and you find some way to turn your mind off. You find some way to take your mind off the pain, to numb it, to stuff it down, to to get rid of that nagging sense that you don't measure up. And it could be a million different things. In our culture, we call them coping mechanisms, right? And it could be anything. It could be busyness, constantly working really, really hard, moving from activity to activity so that when you finally do, when your head hits the pillow at night, you're so physically exhausted that your brain finally turns off and you just go right to sleep and you don't focus on eternal issues because you're so focused on temporary things. A lot of us do that. Or maybe you did what, what, what Jim talked about earlier this semester when he talked through Romans chapter one. We exchange the real God for another God. One that's more convenient, one that doesn't demand anything out of us, one that doesn't have any expectations of us, one that's actually created in our image as opposed to the other way around. 
Or maybe we numb it through drugs and alcohol. And the problem with that is the law of diminishing returns, right? What two drinks used to do to take the edge off doesn't work anymore. And so now you have to drink till you pass out just so you can get your mind to shut off. You see, guilt can be overwhelming, can it not? It was for Luther and it is for you and me. And the only thing that took away Luther's guilt was the gospel. See, the beautiful thing about God, one of the many beautiful things is this. He doesn't offer us coping mechanisms. He gives us a savior. Those are two totally different things. So no artificial coping mechanism works for Luther. None of them will work for you. He tried every single religious one that he could find and the gospel was the only thing that let him off the mat. And it happened like this. He, he was assigned to do a series of lectures on the book of Romans and he didn't want to do it. Because every time that he turned to the book of Romans, he was reminded as he walked through what we walked through last week of how we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he didn't see any way around that. And so the book of Romans to him really haunted him because of that. But then when he started to study the book of Romans again in preparation for these lectures, he saw something new. He saw something different that he had never seen before. He saw what he had always seen, which was that, yeah, God's demanding something out of you that you have no ability to produce on your own. But at the same time, God's also provided exactly what you need in and through Jesus. Specifically, it was Romans 1, 16 through 17 that just rocked his world and actually ended up turning the whole world upside down, literally. Look at this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And for the first time, he saw that this righteousness was not something he had to produce in himself. It was something that God gave to him. And then the rest of the book of Romans seemed to just open up and scream the same thing over and over again. And he saw verses like we looked at last week. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. And the righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. And a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. In other words, the good news took away his guilt. The good news took away his shame which is altogether different than being temporarily relieved of your guilt. Lots of things can temporarily relieve your guilt. Only the gospel removes your guilt. And in Luther's words, when he realized these truths, he said this, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And I find it really interesting that he uses that phrase, open gates, because that refers to access, free access in a relational sense. And I find that interesting because that's exactly where the Apostle Paul is going to take us next in the book of Romans. If you've got your Bibles, go to Romans chapter 5. If not, pull out your programs. We'll, We'll go ahead and get into this. And last week, what we looked at is this. Last week, we looked at how deal number one will always lead to you either becoming arrogant or in despair. And we looked at what does a life look like when you take deal number one? And it usually is going to end up in one of those two places. This week, we want to look at this. What does it look like when you take deal number two? What will your life inevitably look like if you embrace God's grace? The fancy way of talking about what we're going to look at here in a minute, theologians have always called the fruit of justification. In other words, the fact that God has declared sinful people righteous has results. It grows and produces some things in our life. There's 
things that come out of it. It's a gift that has layers. It's a gift that keeps on giving and it's gonna impact your life in significant ways. For Luther, it impacted his life in unbelievably significant ways. He left the monastery, took on the Holy Roman Empire, which was the most, most powerful force on the planet at the time. And then meanwhile, while he's doing all that, and I think it's really cool, he led a, a group of nuns. He helped a group of nuns escape from a convent and then he married one of them. I just think that's funny, all right? Um, So let's see how it plays out in our lives. Look at this, Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever you see the word therefore, you should really pay attention because it's there for a reason, all right? So circle it, highlight it, underline it, something like that. It's a big important word. It means this, in light of everything that we've already talked about, in light of the fact of being justified, in light of the fact of being saved, and a relationship with God is not based on relying on the law, but in relying on Jesus. Therefore, since we have been justified, I want you to notice that phrase, have been. That's past tense. So what Paul is saying is this, if you're a follower of Jesus, It's a finished work. You have been justified. Your position before God cannot be taken. It cannot be shaken. It is secure because it was never based on anything that you did in the first place. It won't be taken from you based on something that you do. So everything Paul says from here on out is directed at, is addressed to followers of Jesus. He says, so you've been justified through faith. In other words, not the law. See, we live in a culture that believes in justification based on just about everything. Justification based on helping little old ladies across the street. Justification by recycling. Justification by minimizing your carbon footprint. Justification by fill in the blank. As long as you do good stuff, as long as you're a good person, you'll be okay before God. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. It's justification through faith. And our faith, you've heard Jim and I teach on this a a bazillion times, faith is based on our looking back at what God has done specifically on the cross and having the confidence that God is who he says he is and will do everything that he's ever promised to do based on what he's already done. And now Paul, what he's going to do now is go, all right, so now I'm talking, to, I'm talking to Christians. Now here's what's going to be true in your life. He starts to unwrap the layers to this gift. And the first thing that he unwraps and he points out is simply this. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's really, really significant. It means that people like us who've been, if, let's just be honest, we've been at odds with God. We've pushed him away. We've told him to butt out of our life. People like that who've been in conflict with him, his enemies, so to speak, have been brought into a peaceful relationship with God by Jesus and only by Jesus. That means Jesus is our, our mediator. The Bible's clear from cover to cover. Jesus is our go-between between us and God. He bridges the gap. The way the New Testament refers to it is this. Jesus is our high priest And everybody who would have read that back then would have gone, wow, that's really cool because all the Jewish people had grown up with a high priest. It was a guy who would go before before God on behalf of the people and offer sacrifices and offer prayers. The problem with that guy was he was a person and people are sinful, which meant that the system wasn't perfect because the guy wasn't perfect and the system was never meant to be perfect. The system was simply meant to be a foreshadowing of the perfect high priest who would come one day, namely Jesus, and bridge the gap perfectly between God and his people. So Paul says, through Jesus, we have peace with God. That's why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace in the New Testament. That's why Jesus, some of his last words to his disciples on earth were this, my peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. There's something I want you to notice about this peace. 
it's permanent peace. It's permanent peace. And we don't have a category for that, do we? We don't have a category for that globally. Our, our, our world is constantly at war. Our country, since its inception, has been basically at war almost all of its days. From the Revolutionary War to the Civil War to, to the World War I, World War II, the Cold War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the wars in the Middle East. We've had way more days of war than we've had of peace. And maybe that's your life. Maybe your life has been marked with conflict day after day. Maybe your whole life has been marked by more days of conflict than peace. And what Paul is saying is this, in your most important relationship, the one you have with God, you can have permanent peace. You may not have that in any other relationship in your life, but in your most important one, you can have it with God. So you need to understand, listen, if you're a believer, if you're following after Jesus, God is for you. He's not opposed to you. He's not seeking to punish you. All the punishment that God had for you has been received by Jesus on the cross and he received all of it. God didn't go, all right, I'll give, I'll give Jesus like 90% of your punishment. I'm gonna save 10% for you because you're gonna screw things up. That's not the way it works. No, he, he dished all of it out on Jesus on the cross. So God's not after you. He's not after you to punish you. That's really significant. Now, look at verse two. Through whom, still talking about Jesus, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have access to God. That's a really, really big deal because what was lost initially when Adam and Eve first sinned? If you remember the story, back in the garden, God creates everything, puts them in this garden, says, I give you one rule, don't eat from that tree. They eat from the tree, they do exactly what you and I would have done. They broke the rules. And so when they break the rules, what do they do? They run away from God because they're ashamed. Shame always leads you to run away and hide. And it seems absurd when we read the story. It's like they try to run from the God who created the universe by hiding in the bushes. It's like, you know what? I think he can probably see you, right? But don't we do similar absurd things? Don't we run from God in crazy ways as well? When we sin, shame leads us to run away from our relationship with God. I talk to people a lot who go, yeah, hey, Scott, I haven't been to church in a while. Why? I got some stuff going on in my life I'm feeling kind of guilty about. And, you know, I just feel weird walking in there as if God only lives in this old Albertsons, right? It's like the only place that he can see you. No, it's not the way it works. You see, we all collectively follow in Adam and Eve's footsteps when we sin. We run and we hide and our access to God is lost. That's what was lost for them. It's what's lost with us. And all of life basically is an exploration of how do we gain access back to God? Do we try to earn it through our own merit? Do we try to do a good job? Do we try to work our way back into God's presence? That's deal number one. Or do we freely accept God's grace? That's deal number two. And that's what Paul's saying we should all receive. Because Jesus gives us access to God. We don't need a priest. We don't need a pastor. We don't need anybody to go before us because Jesus has gone before us. And he's our high priest. That's why Hebrews 4.16 says this. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. That means we can literally approach God with prayer in confidence that he is not going to turn us away in shame, that actually what he's going to give us is mercy. He's not going to give us what we deserve, and he's going to give us grace. He's going to give us better than what we deserve in our time of need. See, deal number two is a great deal for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that you can come before God in your time of need and be absolutely confident that you'll receive mercy and you'll find grace. 
Now look at that next phrase in Romans 5 too. It says this, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That word rejoice actually could be best translated boast. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. It's more than just joy. It's absolute celebration in who God is, what he's done and what he's gonna do. So when someone looks at your life, like this happens to lots of people around here. I hear it all the time where someone looks at you and maybe they haven't, they haven't seen you in a while or they haven't been in contact with you in a while and they see that you are a totally different person than the person they once knew. When they look at you and they go, hey, um, bro, like what happened? The answer is not, well, I got this great self-help book. I watched an infomercial with that Tony Robbins guy changed my whole life. You know, no, that's not, that's not the answer I hear you guys given. The answer I hear you guys given is, it's not me. It's Jesus. It's what he's done in me and it's what he's doing through me. It has, it's really just me kind of riding along the way as he's transforming my life. That's what it means to boast in the hope of the glory of God. It means to boast in the fact that what God is doing is made known in and through you. See, there's only one small difference between hope and faith that Paul's talking about here. See, faith is, again, the assurance that we have that God is who he says he is, will do everything he's ever promised to do, looking back at what he's done. Hope is faith looking forward. It's not wishful thinking. It's the confidence that God will do every single thing that he's ever promised to do, looking forward to that with confidence. Now look at verse three. Not only so, but we also rejoice, there's that word again, we also boast in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. That's a really interesting chain, isn't it? It's one layer after another. One thing produces another. The first thing that Paul says about followers of Jesus is this. Listen, they suffer well. They suffer differently than other people do. And again, I don't have to convince you of this. Just get to know each other. If you'll just hear each other's stories, like, like I've heard a lot of your stories, it's amazing to me that some of you have, have the ability, have the strength to walk into this place week after week with what you've gone through and with what you're going through. Last night, I met a lady. I met several people last night. One lady, though, looked at me and went, yeah, my, my husband committed suicide last week. And she looked right at me, square in the eye, through tear-filled eyes, and went, but I have hope. I have hope. I don't know where that would come from. I don't think a human being can muster that kind of hope. I think God has to supernaturally do that in people. And so many of you have stories like that. But what I want you to also notice is this. Paul's not saying that in the midst of your suffering, you pretend it's a good thing or that you don't struggle in the midst of your suffering or that you don't have doubts or fears in the midst of your suffering. He's not saying you should be some sort of masochist that runs towards suffering. He's saying, listen, because of the fact that you've been justified, suffering takes on a new meaning and it's less significant than it used to be. In other words, because of what you have, what you don't have isn't as important. He's saying, listen, you have an anchor called hope in your soul and it's firmly attached to the person of Jesus. That's the way the Bible talks about it, actually. Hebrews 6.19 says it this way. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So because you have Jesus, because you've taken deal number two, if you don't have, I don't know, fill in the blank, if you don't have money, it's still important, it's just less significant. If you don't have health, it's still important, it's just less significant. If you don't have your marriage, your job, your best friend, whatever that is, because when you have permanent peace with God, everything else pales in comparison, right? When you have permanent peace with God, everything else pales in comparison. And Paul says on top of that, suffering produces something else. It produces this thing called perseverance. 
And any of you who, who run a lot, bike a lot, swim a lot, do like long distance stuff, you know, you're like, well, that, that's just true. Suffering produces perseverance. The fact that you ran that far yesterday gives you the confidence to run just a little bit further today. The fact that it didn't destroy you yesterday gives you the confidence to know that it won't destroy you today. But here's the truth. It's just true. You have to go through the pain to develop the endurance. It literally translates the ability to stand up under immense pressure and, this is key, the patience to stay with it. The patience to stay in the game. I got a really good friend who almost died from cancer last year. And I'm telling you, I got to sit down over dinner with him a few months ago for the first time after he had walked through that whole deal. And I looked at a guy who had come out the other side of that experience tough as nails. Man, on a, on a whole new level, because of what he's walked through, when life throws tough things at him now, he's able to walk through that in ways that most of us cannot because he's been through something tougher. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever considered that there's no way you could walk through what you're currently walking through had you not walked through what you had already walked through? Does that make sense? Like, have you ever considered the fact that there's no way you'd be able to walk through the pain, the suffering, the difficulty that you're having to walk through right now had you not already walked through pain and suffering and difficulty in your past? And have you ever considered that had you not walked through, again, fill in the blank, whether, whatever pain, suffering, difficulty that was, had you not walked through that, you wouldn't be able to help that person that you love so much that's walking through the exact same thing right now? You ever thought of that? It's called perseverance, and perseverance produces something. Paul says perseverance produces character. Interestingly enough, that word character is also translated experience. In other words, some parts of life you only learn through on-the-job training. Some things you just have to go through. That's why we call them character-building experiences. And none of us would ever sign up for them on the front end, right? Like if God went, all right, so here's the deal. I got this great character building experience that you can walk through. You want to come? We'd all go, uh, no. No, give me the shortcut. I'd rather not have it. I don't need the character. I'll just be a bad person. That's fine. You know, it's like, I don't want to go through that. There's lots of things in my life that if you would have given me the option on the front end, I would have chosen not to go through them. But those same things have created who I am and shaped who I am. And the same thing is absolutely true for you. And Paul says that's called character. And that character produces something else. And it's a word he's already talked about, hope. Hope. Look at what he says now about hope. This is kind of interesting. Look at verse five. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Again, this hope is not wishful thinking. I don't know if you've ever put your hope in something to only have it fail. A lot of you are like, yeah, Scott, it's called football season every year, right? <laughs> I know. It can be embarrassing. It may have been a business, a marriage, a friendship, a football team, whatever that is, he or she or it didn't deliver and you put your hope in he or she or it and now you feel foolish. It disappointed you. What Paul is saying is that when you put your hope in Jesus, he'll never put you to shame. He will not put you to shame. That's not his goal for you. That's not what he wants for you. If God wanted to put you to shame, do you know what he would do? Nothing. Nothing. He would have left us alone in our sin and our shame and our isolation, being disconnected from him, letting us suffer the consequences of the fallout of our own choices. He would have done absolutely nothing, but that's not what God wants for us. Instead, God moved 
towards us. Look at this in Romans 5, 6 through 8. Some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. For a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think that's one of the most earth-shattering sections of scripture you'll ever see. Because do you know what the word powerless means? It means dead. It means totally unable to do anything on your own behalf. You can't do anything. So God doesn't come upon us in the midst of our sin and our shame while we're laying dead in the ditch and look at us and go, you should really clean up your life. You should really do better. You should like, I don't know, come to church or something and then maybe I'll talk to you. That's not what God does. That would be about as useful as speaking to a corpse. That's not what he does. What he does is he looks at us in the midst of our sin and our shame and our death in our sin and he breathes life back into us and he doesn't do it for deserving people. There are no deserving people. You're not deserving of anything when you're dead. He doesn't do it for people with potential. You don't have potential when you're dead. He does it for us when we're in our worst moment. That's what he does. He doesn't say, say you're sorry first. He moves towards us before we can ever take a step towards him. See, these verses, this is huge. It means in your worst moment, the thing that in your life, sometimes you still wake up in the middle of the night, even though it happened 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years ago. And the waves of guilt come over you again and again. And it's like you're right back in that place, that worst moment of sin and shame, that series of events that if you could just erase something from your life, that would be it. But the tapes keep playing and playing and playing. It means in that moment, that's the moment that Jesus looked at our heavenly father and said, I'll die for that. I'll become that. I'll pay the price for that. I'll carry that shame. I'll carry that punishment. I'll take the condemnation they deserve for that so they don't have to carry that. That's huge. That's significant. It's a much better deal. You see, deal number one, perfectly obeying the law, that's a life-draining deal, which in essence puts a finger in your chest and says, you can't. Deal number two, totally embracing God's grace, is a life-giving deal that basically looks at you and says, you can't, but Jesus did. So now by his grace, you can. It's a better deal. You can, you can suffer well, you can persevere, you can grow as a person, you can reflect who God is to others through your character. You can have total confidence that God is who he says he is and he'll deliver on every promise. You can, by grace, have hope. You can. Last week, I gave you a couple questions to help determine whether you're taking deal number one. I want to give you a couple questions to help you determine if you've taken deal number two. First question is really simple. They're both are. Do you have faith? Do you have faith? Do you believe that God did in fact love you enough to send his one and only son to die for you so that you wouldn't have to perish but you could have eternal life? Do you believe that what Jesus did on the cross counted totally on your behalf? And is all sufficient. Do you have faith? Here's the second question. Do you have hope? Do you have that anchor for your soul? Do you have confidence that God will do everything he's promised to do? And total confidence that God's not after you. He doesn't want to shame you. He doesn't want to disappoint you. And he doesn't want to punish you. That's why he sent Jesus to you. We're going to wrap up a little differently today. I want to read you some verses that Paul actually wrote from prison to a group of Christians in a town called Philippi. And these, uh, these verses, I think, really 
kind of sum up everything we've been talking about the past couple weeks. And, and my friends Tony and Dennis are going to come uh, sing a song. And this song was taken straight out of Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. I just really want you to use this time. Don't anybody leave. Don't anybody go anywhere. Just, just reflect on whether you've taken deal number two. Do you have faith? And do you have hope? And could you say words like this? But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead.